Hi there, and welcome to a new podcast. Today we have Chris Ball with us. He is a co-founder and chief scientific officer of AI Proteins. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you. Can you tell the people what you do? Yeah, thanks very much for for having me today. So, um, the we just founded a brand new company, and so we're uh, using computational simulation to design new medicines. And really, we're out there to um, usher in a new class of medications that will, they're biologic drugs. So this is a, a broad new category of medicine that's really making a big impact in the world. Um, but these types of medicines are mostly first world medicines. So they're kind of complicated to administer and expensive to store and distribute. And so our mission is to make a new type of biologic drug that's able to overcome these and democratize access to this type of medicine. So for the average person, what kind of diseases are you fixing with this? What, uh, because I think you recently started this, this whole thing. Um, so, so what, what prompted you to do that? Obviously you have a incredible resume. I think you're a lecturer at Harvard. You have all these, uh, positions that you fulfilled in the past. Why start this? What are you changing? And, and what is the daily person going to feel from it? Yeah, uh, yeah great questions. So um, maybe we'll start with, you know, what are these medicines for? So I think a lot of people have become aware of antibodies recently. I think the pandemic has turned this from a, a science word into a household word. Um, antibodies can often be there. I mean, it's what our immune system generates when you get a vaccine and we can also isolate antibodies and administer them as medicine, right? The Regeneron antibody cocktail, for instance, is, uh, against COVID is, is quite famous. So, uh, antibody medicines are protein based medicines. And so, you know, most people think about proteins, they think about food, um, but proteins are really fascinating molecules. They are really tiny machines. They're nanorobots, and they mediate essentially all of the chemistry of life. And if you can engineer proteins to do stuff, you can cure diseases. Um, lots of people think about you know genetics and genomics and and their DNA and and that you know genetics is, is really I think in the forefront right now. Um, but DNA is really just blueprints for proteins, and it's the proteins that actually do the chemistry that cause us to be alive. So um, if you can engineer proteins, you can engineer new drugs. And so that, that's essentially what many antibody drugs are. They're, they're protein-based drugs, and they're injected. So we came up with a technology to create a new type of protein. We call them mini-proteins. So they're smaller than the average-sized protein. And uh, you know these, these proteins exist in nature. We didn't invent these. But the natural ones are really challenging to engineer. Um, if you can find one that already does something useful, then you know you can have a product and it can be applied. But if the molecule doesn't already do what you want it to, uh, with the natural ones, you can't really engineer them. So that's that's what we figured out. Um, this we first figured out how to do this. I would say about ten years ago, and the journey to a company started in my academic lab. I was just previously at the Institute for Protein Innovation in Boston, and uh, the IPI is a translational protein engineering institute. And there I led a research team that took this academic proof of concept, the ability to design these, these mini proteins, and turned it into a process that we could reliably perform for creating these molecules. And it's really a new way of making medicine. And essentially any type of disease that you could treat with an antibody, we think we could use a mini protein for. And so this is infectious disease, it's autoimmune disease potentially, cancer, um, heart disease, kidney disease, kind of you name it. Um, that's uh, that's what we're going for. Um, the discovery of proteins is obviously not new. So why 
are you guys different? Why is it now only happening? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. So the, the um, way that we do it is we use computer software. So we simulate the structure of a protein. So um, an analogy that I think is sort of helpful to think about. So, you know, a protein is, is a tiny robot. Um, but it's not a robot in the way I would say that most people think about like a Star Wars robot, you know, an android that walks around and makes decisions and talks and is really sophisticated. Um, a protein is a robot more like a dishwasher, which is, I think, a type of robot that maybe people take for granted. They don't think about your dishwasher as being a robot, but it absolutely is a robot. Um, you know, it has a really specific structure. It's got a door that opens and racks that can hold the dishes and nozzles to, to squirt the water. And the structure of your dishwasher enables it to perform its function. And it takes input, takes dirty dishes and water and soap, and it has output. Clean dishes, dirty water, right? Um, and so proteins are, are a robot in a similar way in that they have a structure that's explicitly crafted to perform one specific function. They take input and they take output um, and they do a really simple task. Um, but you can imagine the dishwasher is a really complicated uh, you know, piece of equipment. You can draw the whole thing by hand, but oftentimes to make a really good dishwasher you need computer software to help you design it. Um, and so proteins are really in much the same way. Uh, it, it's a really sophisticated three-dimensional structure and it's tiny, and these things are, you know, nanometers in size, and so we can't see them. And it's it's kind of right at the edge of of uh, you know physics, kind of the smallest thing that you know we're talking thousands of atoms, so they're they're very small. So it's really hard to simulate them and to design them, and so that's where computer software comes in. Um, and so the in the last I would say ten years, there's been something of a renaissance in computational protein design. And this is enabling us to design new proteins with new shapes and new functions, and then to make these proteins do you know, whatever we need them to do, like cure diseases. So if it's been 10 years since this is discovered, why hasn't it been used for the pandemic now? Right, so um, it's, a, it's a cutting edge technology. So the ability to do this at all was demonstrated 10 years ago. And there was a sort of a big difference between uh, showing that it's possible and being able to do it reliably. Okay, so, so when will it be able to be done reliably? I would say uh, it's right around now. <laughs> um, and so some of it is that the first designed protein medicines are just entering the clinic now. And so it's fundamentally a, a new type of molecule. You know, these things are completely artificial. Um, another way to think about this is the, the transition. So, you know, the proteins that we were using as medicines now are natural or they're derived from natural materials, right? So an antibody is a natural human protein, we just tweak the little bits of it that cause it to bind to the virus and that that's all the, the part. The rest of it's just a human protein. When we design stuff, we're really building it from scratch, from the ground up. And um, so if you think about, you know, in the past humans building structures, you know, originally we took rocks and sticks and we shaped them and created buildings with that and that's took us a long ways, we could build castles. Uh, but we didn't build skyscrapers until we could really shape the materials and get concrete and steel. And the ability to design proteins totally from scratch, not just modifying natural ones, this is a sort of a similar transition that's just going underway now. And it's a slow process to get medicines through the FDA and get them approved for human use. So we're just beginning that era now. So then you're um, touching a really good subject, my next question, which is, how is that safe? Like, how do you know that something artificial will be safe to ingest? A common thing now in the pandemic is what are the long-term effects? So how, how do you guys know? And then, yeah, how do you know if it's safe? 
Yeah, that's a really great question as well. So the, well, the short answer is we test it. Um, so, uh, you know, you never know until, until you test. So, you know, first we test in uh, models in the laboratory where we can take cells in culture and make sure that the molecule is doing what it's supposed to. And then we put them into simple lab animals like mice and make sure that it's safe for the mice. And then sort of slowly increase the complexity uh, and the likeness to humans. And, um, and then eventually you go into human clinical trials where a few patients are dosed um, to make sure that the medicine is safe. And then you slowly you know, dose more people um, and make sure that the medicine's doing what it's supposed to. Um, but in general, small molecule drugs tend to be a little bit more dangerous. The, you're thinking small molecules are traditional drugs kind of like aspirin, right? Aspirin binds to lots of different stuff in the body. And it's processed by the liver and it becomes other stuff as, as it's uh, broken down and, and, and gotten rid of. And every small molecule drug is something similar, right? It binds to what it's supposed to. Maybe it binds to some things you didn't want it to bind, but hopefully that's safe, and hopefully it doesn't turn into poison when your liver processes it. But um, protein drugs tend to be safer because protein is a natural material that we already have in our bodies. So it's food. Our cells know how to break it down. There's no toxic byproducts. The, the big worry with protein-based drugs generally is do we understand the biology well enough so that when the drug does what it's supposed to, that that's safe. And so that, that's um, you know, one way. And then the other is, do, does our immune system recognize this protein is foreign? And the, the dangerous part there is that our immune system can um, attack the medicine and make it, make it uh, no longer work after it's administered a few times. Essentially, it's a, the medicine could work as a vaccine against itself. So, so then what is your kind of, I would say, position in the forefront of this protein medicine revolution? Like, why did you decide to do what you're doing? And, and where are you guys currently? Mini proteins, I guess, have been something that I've been working on for about 10 years now. Back when I was a trainee at the Institute for Protein Design in Seattle, Washington, it was a really lovely place. Um, that's where uh, I did the first work where we showed that mini protein design was possible at all. Um, and then in my academic lab at the similarly named Institute for Protein Innovation uh, on the other side of the continent uh, in Boston, that's, that's where we turned this into a drug platform. And um, for me, I think the interesting part was the discovery of, you know, can we, can, can we do this? And I was really drawn to wanting to use this, not just create a, you know, uh, uh, a proof of concept, oh, this is possible. Um, it became clear that it's possible and we can really use it, but if we don't do it, no one else is going to, or at least it's going to take a lot longer. And so we have the opportunity to really do some good in the world. And as we're making the decision to leave academia, I say we because my entire academic lab also joined the company. So I had a series of one-on-one -on -one meetings with each person on my research team and asked, would you want to stay in academia and continue to do basic research or do you want to take this technology that we created and go try to make an impact in the world in a biotech company? And unanimous, uh, the unanimous response was, let's go try to do something really helpful and impactful in the world. And how did you provide salaries for so many people? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, so we started a venture-backed, uh, uh, you know, bio biotech company. So, Cobro Ventures is our our lead investor, um, and uh, yeah, we're we just formed a, formed a biotech company, the kind of the, the standard way. So, when when I hear biotech companies, I think this is not going to take off for the next five to ten years. Um, so, when you're backed, does that mean? They're backing your research, development, all those FDA approvals. So pretty much we're not going to see anything until like maybe in 10 years we'll see something. Right. So, um, so I'm, I'm just a protein geek. I don't have a lot of business expertise and very fortunate that 
the folks at Cobra Ventures, uh, Mark Cohen in particular, the CEO and, and, found, and uh, co-founder of, of uh, Cobra is also the CEO and the co-founder of our new company, AI Proteins. And so Mark brings a enormous amount of business expertise and, um, uh, and, and network. And so they really brought the, the, the business side so that we can move fast and, and do science. So our hope is to have molecules that we know are safe in animals in the next, I would say, year, um, and then to be maybe you know one or two years later initiating human clinical trials. We, the nice thing with proteins is they really do tend to be safer uh, than small molecules, and and so we can move faster than than uh, you know. What kind of diseases are you thinking you'll be fixing first? Um if everything goes according to plan in probably four to five years, you'll start hitting the market. Which disease do you want to hit first? Or is this globally applicable to every single disease? Right. So there are many different diseases that we can pursue. Um, some of the first ones, actually, we're planning to pursue indications, so, uh, you know, diseases that already have protein-based medicines. We want to be able to benchmark our designed medicines against stuff that's already approved by the FDA. And so um, I think that that will be a, a great way to show that our, our stuff is safe and that we know it's working accordingly. And then you're right, then there's the whole other wealth of, of diseases that don't currently have medicines that we are very interested in pursuing as well. Um, so some of our first indications will be in inflammatory bowel disease. This is a very, I would say, hot area. There are many, many companies, large pharma, small biotech, all pursuing this. It's, it's, a, it's a really horrible disease, and from an economics perspective, it's a very valuable indication as well. It's a large market. Um, and the medicines that are out there today work well for some people, but... Um, maybe only about half of the patients who really need it. So there's still a lot of good to be done by making improved versions of existing medicines. What about diseases like, I'm not a med medicine expert, but like cancer or something like that? Can't you handle those type of diseases? Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're also planning to work on that. So um, one of the, the cool things about AI proteins is that we are, all of our expertise here is in, the molecules themselves, engineering the molecules, not necessarily in the biology. And so our strategy is to partner with other biotech companies that have expertise in the biology, but don't have the ability to make a molecule that they need to make in order to solve the challenge. And so for going after cancer, we have several companies that we're, that we're uh, talking with right now um, to, to partner with to make molecules for cancer. But if this is genuinely so groundbreaking, and I mean, you had a big TED talk about it and everything, isn't it like Nobel worthy almost if you find it a cure for cancer? So um, I think lots of people like to think about there being a cure for cancer, but uh, cancer isn't a disease. Every type of cancer is a little bit different. And um, there are often many things that you need to do to come together to, to treat cancer. And so, uh, you know, even for any given cancer, there's, it's not likely that there's going to be a cure. It's we can take these three or four things and add them all together, and that's what's going to cure a given patient. Um, but if you have those designer proteins, can't you specifically target it for all those variations and then adjust the proteins every time? It almost feels like this would be the cure combined with all these other things yeah it's a um, it's a lot of molecules to engineer and uh, the ability to characterize an individual person's cancer and know exactly what's needed and have all the molecules that have been created and tested to make sure that they're safe I think you're you're absolutely correct I think that um, in many ways the you know the roadmap toward being able to treat cancer very effectively is becoming clearer and clearer. Um, it's more a matter of just building the infrastructure, showing that it works, showing that it's safe for people. Um, 
know, before the COVID-19 pandemic, most people didn't really think about infectious disease in the developed world. Um, and, you know, even in the, the developing world, infectious disease is, is getting, um, you know, treatments are getting better and better and prevention is getting better and better. And so, you know, for, for I'd say most people in the U.S. and Europe, um, you know, before the pandemic didn't really think about infectious disease very much uh, because the, the treatment methods were so good. And I think that in maybe 10 years from now, my hope is that cancer will be at a similar place. Okay. Um, but then kind of circling back again, if it's so important and, and so like Nobel worthy and, and such a huge breakthrough, um, how come it's not all over the news? Like this technology is out there. We need funding to make these designer proteins and why is it not much more famous? That's a great question. I'm not sure why uh, things aren't more famous. I would say it's, it's the newness. Um, the public tends to not uh, pay attention to science very much. I think in some ways, if there's anything that's good that's come out of the pandemic, it's an increased awareness of the public in, in science. Um, and so I think that that alone would be a great trend if it continues. Um, and it's also just such a new technology that hasn't yet cured anybody because we're still in the process of putting this into human trials. So I think when it starts curing people, that's when people will really start to believe in it. But right now it's just a belief. It's a technology that we can do and we know it works in a lab and now we have to go put it in uh, and show that it's safe and show that it works. Considering you guys were the researchers behind it, um, like your team and everything, is there anybody else in the world also doing this? Um, so there are folks in uh, the Institute for Protein Design, my old postdoc lab from David Baker. There are folks there. They're also still working on mini proteins. And there are several folks that are working on the natural versions of mini proteins. And so uh, natural mini proteins, you can find them in very cool places, often in the venoms of insects and mollusks. So um, cone snails, venomous cone snails is something I didn't realize. There are these snails that uh, shoot out uh, an organ and inject a neurotoxin into fish and then eat them. Uh, and they use mini proteins in their venoms. And scorpions and spiders also use mini proteins in their venoms. And sometimes these venoms, uh, these mini proteins in the venoms can do something useful. So um, the story I think that comes closest to, the, to mind is, um, is a, a mini protein isolated from Deathstalker scorpion called the chlorotoxin. And uh, Jim Olson and, and his team at the Fred Hutch in Seattle and his company, Blaze Bioscience, uh, they found that they can use a component of scorpion venom, this chlorotoxin, to label cancer cells with a fluorescent molecule. And so they, they call this stuff tumor paint. The, they can take the venom, it actually doesn't, it's not harmful, it's this one component of the venom, and they engineered it and they attached uh, a fluorescent molecule to it. Um, this scorpion protein also binds to liver cells, so um, you have to be careful. You can think about it as a way to deliver targeted chemotherapy so that it doesn't, you know, chemotherapy is just stuff that kills cells, essentially, right? And it kills cells everywhere, and you hope that it kills faster-growing cells like cancer uh, more efficiently than it kills everything else in you, but it's still just broadly toxic. So you can use you can use proteins to, de to deliver poison more specifically in the body. And so that's the initial thing you might think about. Oh, okay, it's great. This binds cancer. Let's just go bring poison directly to the cancer cells. But it also binds to the liver. And so that's pretty important. You don't want to <laughs> bring poison to the liver. Um, but you can bring fluorescent molecules. And when surgeons are cutting cancer out of a patient, especially in places like in the brain, where they really want to make sure that they get all the cancer out so they don't have to go back, and you really want to make sure you don't cut anything out that needs to be there. Um, 
being able to have the tumor glow is really, really important and helpful. Um, in the past, otherwise, you have to cut sections out, send it down to pathology, wait for the, the doctors in pathology to stain it and figure out where the margins are, and then send it information back to you. So it keeps people under a lot longer, and it's, it's, a, lot, it's a lot less precise. So if you guys, yeah, sir, if you have that um, way to design those proteins, then why wouldn't you take those natural proteins that were discovered and then, you know, I, I can, I'm assuming right now that it would be much easier to just further develop those proteins to not attach to liver cells. And suddenly you have this perfect, like, uh, fluorescent protein thing. So, I mean, that's a, a it's a, a very astute assumption, but unfortunately it has not, it's not that easy. And so I might actually go back to the, the, the building analogy where, you know, you might think it's easier to take stones and figure out how to build a wall by modifying them, but it turns out it's just much easier to just make sheetrock and throw, you know, grind it up, throw it out <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, use a totally artificial way to go about it. So part of the, the problem with this chlorotoxin is that we actually don't fully understand how it works. And um, there's an interesting thing with these mini proteins is that part of what makes them really special is that they're really durable proteins. So normally proteins are sensitive to high heat, right? So you're making breakfast, you're cooking eggs, you watch the clear egg white go from clear to to white and opaque when you heat it, what that's doing is denaturing the proteins in there. It's, it's unfolding them and breaking the proteins. Um, the mini proteins are really special in that they're resistant to heat. It's, a, it's an uncookable egg, uh, is maybe one way you can think about it. And um, the way that they do this is they have extra chemical bonds which help keep the protein together and so that it can't break and fall apart. And it's really quite enriched in these. Um, but it also means the structure is really sensitive to mutation. So if you, if you try to engineer it, you essentially do that by making mutations, by making changes to the protein. And when you do that, the structure is really sensitive, and it causes it to change a little bit. And then those extra chemical bonds can't form because the structure is not lined up perfectly for those to happen. And then the molecule essentially falls apart. So... Um, in, a, in essence, by trying to engineer it, you break it. But so in short, if I do summarize it a little bit, the research that proteins can bring, and I guess that's why obviously you're doing all these talks, is potentially a cure for many, many diseases. So in 10 years, when it becomes more, you know, mainstream in our society, and there are more companies doing it, more researchers doing it. We could be looking in 20 or 30 years from now, people not dying anymore from old diseases like heart attacks and stuff like that. Like this could fix a lot of the issues that aging people get. So, yeah, I think that's that's right. And it's it's not just proteins. It's it's proteins in, used in many ways. So there's also cell-based therapies where... Uh, people are reprogramming immune cells to to be a therapy. So it's called CAR-T, chimeric antigen receptor. Um, and so it's reprogrammed immune cells. And the way that, that you reprogram the immune cells is by you know, changing their DNA, but you're changing their DNA to make engineered proteins on the surface. And so the immune cells recognize cancer because we engineered the proteins on those cells to recognize cancer. Um, so I think it, it's at the... Protein engineering is certainly at the at the center of of the you know revolution in medicine that's happening right now, but I think the fun part is that it doesn't end at just medicine. Proteins can do so much more than just that. Um, so we can enhance potentially not just cure diseases, but make ourselves better. And um, other very exciting things like next generation pesticides that kill worms and other other bugs that chew on crops but they won't harm bumblebees and 
helpful insects like pollinators. How would you enhance yourself with proteins? Yeah. Um, so this is a frontier form of research that is not, is not a lot of people in this space right now. But I, I think back to a, a paper that came out, I think when I was an undergraduate in Journal of Biological Chemistry. It was a really fun article. So you know, when you exercise and you're really working hard, you don't have enough oxygen and your muscles aren't able to fully metabolize all the sugar they need to generate the energy and they start making a byproduct called lactic acid and this builds up in your muscles and it kind of what makes your muscles burn and it's also uh, why you one of the big reasons why you want to massage muscles after exercise is to help get that lactic acid out of there and the lactic acid goes on a journey back to your liver and your liver then works on it and converts it back into sugar and then can ship it back to your muscles, right? Seems like kind of an inefficient process. So there was a group that took the, uh, the proteins in the liver that do this and they put them in the muscles instead. Um, and they made genetically engineered mice that, that could do this. And there was a really great uh, figure in this paper. It was a movie where they had a mouse running on a treadmill, a normal mouse, and it ran maybe 100 yards and it got tired. And then they had a, a mouse on a treadmill next to it. I think they dubbed it the super mouse, and it ran for almost a half marathon at full sprint. Um, Whoa. So these types of things become possible when you're working with proteins. You know, Who knows what other side effects that mouse experienced. Maybe you know, there's a good reason why this wasn't the case. But uh, this is just sort of a, I would say, shows what's possible when you're really able to, to change the proteins. But with, with that mouse example, is that, um, is that a way where you've now made your body more efficient, so you've taken the next step in evolution? Or have you now messed with an ecosystem that should not be messed with, so it's going to affect something else? Right, so, um, you know, also, even if it was totally fine for the mouse, you know, mice only live a couple years, and... Uh, <laughs> They're very different organisms than humans, so you know I, I don't I don't know how safe that would be in in a human. Um, but uh, I think when we start, when we've conquered most of our disease, I think these are the types of things that this massive, uh, you know, academic research and biotechnology engine that that you know, global engine is going to start turning toward when there's no more diseases to to cure anymore, then we're going to start working on, you know, making humans better. But that's, I think that's still a ways away. But for instance, the military has a huge amount of budgets for literally what you just mentioned. I feel like that would speed up the whole research and applications and, and make sure that it's safer and, and applicable to humans. Uh, isn't there if, if this exists and it's so cool, why, why isn't like there, why isn't the military giving you a contract for billions of dollars to just get it done on soldiers? <laughs> <laughs> well, so we don't, you know, we, we don't, we don't do that, uh, you know, type of, type of research. And, you know, like I said, we're, we're the protein geeks. So we make the proteins that do stuff. We're not necessarily the, the folks that interface with the, with the biology is, is quite so much. Um, you know, it's, this is really hard. All this stuff is incredibly challenging and it's getting increasingly interdisciplinary, right? And so, you know, my team, we are, I would say, full stack protein nerds. So we write software to simulate protein structure and to design it in the computer. We even assemble our own supercomputers to be able to run our software because uh, we have often really unique uh, and specialized hardware requirements. And then we actually get synthetic uh, genes and we produce our protein in a lab. We genetically engineer cells to produce our proteins and we extract it and test it using biophysics methods. And so, you know, to do what we do requires everything from 
computer hardware, computer software development, genetic engineering, protein biochemistry, biophysics, um, and kind of everything in between. That's already a lot of different scientific disciplines um, that we have to combine to be able to do what we do. And then now to be able to take those proteins and interface with biology, which is you know very sophisticated, even a cell is a really complicated robot. Um, and putting cells together into an organism is also really hard, right? So this science is becoming increasingly interdisciplinary and um, that's what makes it interesting, but also makes it challenging. So do you think that as we grow as a species, it's uh, becoming more, it's becoming more complex to solve these things, but do you think that we'll have enough people to handle it? Or do you think it will get so complicated that at one point we'll just say, oh, that's the highest skyscraper we can build and we can't go further than that? No, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the potential is really amazing and I think we were just scratching the surface of it. Um, so there are lots, lots of folks going into graduate school uh, and learning to do science and, um, yeah, it, it, it's just more and more, it's going to be, it's such an exciting time to be a scientist. There's never, never been a better time in the past. For those that are kind of looking at university maybe and want to start a career, what type of things would they need to study to get into this industry, which hopefully will be booming in a couple of years? Yeah, so software development is really, really helpful, I think. I'm sure advice that every young person is getting right now, go learn how to program. It will take you far, and it's very true. Um, but don't forget to take some biology classes, some biochemistry classes. Uh, helps to understand uh, you know, how the systems work, because you, know, you need to do more than just process statistics. It also requires understanding some of what the system is doing. I want to I wanna circle back a little bit and, and look at it from um, kind of your personal mindset going into it. So at what point did you decide to spin this off uh, into a company? How did you decide to choose the venture capitalist? Because I feel like this is a very, I, I would compare it almost to art, like somebody who's a great artist and has to sign a record label. So I feel like it's pretty much the same dynamic going on. How did you decide who was the right venture capitalist for you? Why did you decide to leave academia to pursue business pretty much? And what was that process like? Can you kind of shape it from the beginning till, till now? Sure. Um, so some of the, the motivation was really that, you know, we had created a technology that could do useful things and was funding, uh, funding my lab with government grants and, you know, we had a good amount of, of uh, grant funding and there was no problems there. Um, and we also had sponsored research where we, we were working with um, biotech and pharma companies who would, um, you know, donate money to the lab essentially um, and pay pay for research that would go on, and there started to become a lot of interest from biotech and pharma companies in what we were what we were working on, um, and academic institutions tend to like getting grant money from governments, and they that's what they want the focus to be, and. We started getting, I would say, more interest from biotech wanting to work with us than the administrators were comfortable with. And I really wanted to do these projects because especially with the sponsored research ones, we're, we're all essentially making drug candidates. We're really going after making a molecule. It's not, oh, we'll learn something that someday will help people. It's no, we're going to make a molecule that will help somebody someday directly. And I realized that I didn't want to give all that up. I really wanted to be doing that. And 
that's essentially not what academia is for. That's what biotech companies are for. And so that, that was something of a, of a realization. And so this all happened very quickly. This was, I would say, was July of this year. And normally it takes a little bit longer. So I started talking to venture capitalists and I think I'm also very fortunate to be in Boston at this particular time in history. I would say there's no better uh, city in the world and no better time uh, so, you know, to be starting a biotech company than right now in, in Boston. Uh, there's just so much, so much excitement, so much buzz, and just so much investment money pouring into these startups. And so, you know, talked to quite a few folks, and um, Cobra Ventures really likes platform companies. And so, finding a good fit with your with your venture funders is really important. Uh, you know, many venture groups want to see, you know, what is your one molecule that's going to be a potential medicine and you know show me the data from animals that shows this works already they want it to be really i would say de-risked as much as possible before they invest in it and they want that one asset that one molecule that potentially could become a medicine they don't necessarily they want they want the the golden egg they don't care about the goose um, and we we're a platform that makes drugs we're the goose that lays the golden eggs and Cobro really had the, the um, alignment with what we wanted to do. They really like platforms and they really like to get in early. So they're, they're willing to take the, take the risks on early technologies and, and bet on um, you know, what's going to be the next big thing. And so that, that was very exciting and very fortunate that we, we, find, you know, we found uh, people that were a good match. I think that's in general. The you know the most important thing when you're trying to start start something is is you know, find find people that's a good fit for you. So what makes it that they're a good fit, especially speaking from the perspective of you being a scientist and you're you said it yourself, not a business person. What you know what was it that you thought this makes it a good fit, and now in retrospect you're looking back a couple of months later, were you right or did you mess up some things? Yeah, no, they they are a great fit, and some of that is that they, um, they like to work with scientific founders and to take a technology from, you know, idea and help to wrap a business plan around it, right? So they're not just putting money into the company and stepping away. They came on as co-founders of the company, helped to build it from the ground up. And provide, I would say, the you know the other half of of what you need. A, com a biotech company can't be successful on just a good idea. You also have to know how to run a business, which um, I'm really fortunate to have that seasoned expertise from from the venture fund uh, to bring that. So, um, a quick question: Is it public how much funding you guys received or not? So um, we haven't announced our series seed of funding yet. Hopefully, we'll be doing so in the next, I'd say, month or so. Are you able to share it here already or not? Um, yeah, probably not quite yet. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no worries. Um, so then once you fit, find a fit, what is it about the conversations that you had with this venture fund that, you know, made it better than all the others? You, you mentioned it's a platform, they take it over, but I'm assuming you had a conversation with a person there. And what is it that that person said that you're like, okay, I think these people are going to make me successful? Right. So um, so I was introduced to Mark Cohen, um, who runs this venture fund and is now CEO of, of AI Proteins, um, through an academic collaborator of mine, Carl Novina. And Carl also you know, works with, um, with Mark on several of his companies. And... I think the, the thing that's really great is that Mark is philosophically aligned with our mission. And it's always great when you find someone who just already thinks like you. And so, you know, we didn't start a biotech company because, you know, with the goal, explicit goal of getting rich. Um, if you make successful drugs that help a lot of people, I think it's possible to earn money and that's a nice perk. But that's not our mission. That's not our goal. Um, our goal is, is to make medicines that help people. That's first and foremost what we want to do. That's our. That's our. What drives us, and that's 
exactly how Mark thinks as well. So he's not just trying to pump a bunch of money into a, you know, a collection of buzzwords, grow the valuation, and then dump it. And he wants to, he wants to build something that actually matters, that actually helps people. Um, I think you know if if he's keeping score, it's in FDA approvals. It's in how many how many medicines and how many people's lives are impacted by this investment. So what's different now when you had your research lab people-wise and now that you got the venture funding, how many people were you back then? How many people are you now? Are you seeing already a big growth or are you still in the research phase? Right. So um, I guess at the, at the largest, the group was, academic research group was 17 people. So this included um, you know, visiting scientists um, and um, uh, first-year graduate students who were sort of testing the lab out, um, really talented post-baccalaureate fellow, um, and um, a really talented principal scientist in the lab. And then uh, a group of postdoctoral research fellows and research associates. And so all the postdocs and research associates joined the company, so nine folks. Um, and then, um, yeah, un unfortunately, the other folks weren't, weren't able to come. And, and once the venture funding came through, how has it been different with the recruitment and has the company grown or is it still the same? So um, I would say it's not super common for an academic lab to leave, to leave uh, together and to start a company. Usually it's a couple people might leave and go spin out. Um, you know, maybe a faculty member will leave uh, and leave their lab behind. But having a, a team stay together like this is not uh, a common occurrence. And honestly, I think that's one of the things that the, the Venture Fund was really intrigued by. Because uh, it's, it's a really unique opportunity to get the whole team that built the technology. And so we, we aren't planning to grow a lot right now because we're already pretty big for a startup. Um, you know, nine, nine people came with me, so there's 10 of us total um, on, the, on the science side. And we'll probably hire just a couple of folks to get going. Um, but we've got a lot of that expertise that we would need. And, you know, because there's so so many startup companies and, and so much you know, biotech and pharma are booming in Boston right now, the talent pool is also really depleted. It's really competitive to get people. And so you know, having as many people as we do who are so talented to get started is, is also something we're really fortunate to have. It's a, big, it's a big leg up. How did you convince the people to leave altogether? I mean, you quickly mentioned, like, do you want to do some impact? But but I'm assuming that wasn't a two-sentence kind of conversation. So how did you convince those people to do that step and literally what you said, create a non-common occurrence where the whole team almost leaves? Right. So I'm actually not sure if I convinced them so much as they convinced me. <laughs> uh, um, so... You know, the, the Institute for Protein Innovation is, is a translational research institute. So a lot of the people in the lab were already thinking about starting a biotech company or having the next career step, you know, be in, in biotech. Um, you know, academic research is supposed to be a training opportunity. It's unfortunate that I think that's not necessarily what a lot of people's experience in academia is, but I feel very strongly that um, if you're doing academic research, it's... It's also supposed to be a training opportunity. It's supposed to be preparing you for your next career step. Um, and I think everyone understood the impact of our, of our research and the, the potential that it could have as well. And I think everyone immediately grasped the, the ramifications of you know, what we could do with real biotech scale resources with a whole team focusing on a single goal instead of academic research where everyone's a little bit separate and has you know their own projects and what if we really all come together and I think we also operated more like a team than is common in academia um, to be able to have people kind of put aside the individualism that I think is really common in academia and work together 
um, is is also just something really special. Um, How come it was? Were you leading it, or did you do something that made it more kind of team like? Um, I would say that's what I wanted to have happen. I'm not sure that I can claim credit for it. Uh, the team of people that I get to work with, they are truly amazing. And um, I guess if there's one thing that I might have done right was to really have the, the team help to grow themselves. So when we would recruit, we looked for like-minded individuals that really cared a lot about the impact of what they were doing, really the desire to do good in the world. And um, yeah, and just that, you know, you can teach people how to do everything except how to care uh, and really, you know, put themselves into, into their work. And, um, and so we, that, that was the trait that we recruited most and, and just leveraged the whole team during the recruitment process. So no one, you know, I didn't hire, decide to hire people. The whole, the whole team came together and decided uh, who got to join. And so I, I think that ended up just building a really co cohesive unit. Interesting. How's the future going to look like if you look at the space and the world, um, especially we've gone out of such a pandemic, but also I'm thinking, looking back at um, the fast-paced globalization, I feel like this isn't the last pandemic coming. What's the future of medicine going to look like from your perspective? And and what kind of changes can we expect in the next 20, 30 years if your you know, research becomes a reality and starts really you know, changing people's lives? So I, I hope that things will get faster. And I think that's one, one thing the pandemic has taught us is that it's possible to make safe medicines from conception to usage much faster than we've been doing in the past. Um, the antibodies to treat COVID came about really quickly. The vaccine was a totally new type of vaccine. The Pfizer and Moderna RNA vaccines weren't in use in the past. And so I think it showed everybody that when we really want to hurry and we decide to tackle large challenges with urgency and motivation, that it's possible. And so I hope that, that we'll learn that lesson well and carry it forward. We don't have to wait 10 years to, to start you know, treating people and uh, making new medicines. Is we, we can move faster. There is risk involved. Um, you know, that will likely be some medicines that had an unforeseen side effect or are damaging in some way. I think we'll get better and better at minimizing that risk, but it's always there. And, but I think people are now able to see, or I hope at least, that waiting and going slow is not without consequence. Every day that you don't have a medicine to treat a particular disease that's fatal kills people. And so what's the risk of moving faster versus the risk of guaranteed risk, or I should say guaranteed death count from not treating that disease quicker? And so I, I think as we start to do that type of math a little bit more, we'll be able to do uh, risk calculations with statistics rather than emotion. How do you, considering you're on the front lines, how do you think you're going to contribute to that future? Who do you even talk to or convince to make things move faster? Well, I would say some of that starts with discussions like this one. Um, I think the more the public understands science, where it's, it's not this kind of scary black box, um, the more they can understand the risks, right? If you're making decisions for someone else and they don't understand them, that's scary. But if people understand the risks and they're willing to take them on and they understand the consequences of not taking that risk, I think it becomes easier. And so, you know, as with everything, it's just education and understanding engagement from the public will make all of this better. I really like that. I was uh, also going to ask I'm not an expert in this area. You are. So my question is, what is 
something that you'd like to share that you usually don't get to share because I'm not educated enough to ask that question? Goodness, that's... I guess that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I guess maybe, maybe more of a plea in that, you know, I have um, a lot of friends who follow sports really closely. And I understand sports are super fun. You know, I've been a fan myself, you know, hockey, and it's 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 a great time. Um, but the amount of time and and energy and effort as a species we put into sports and professional sports, which, when you boil it down, is adult millionaires playing children's games. If we cared, I would say fifty percent less about the adult millionaires playing games and put that time and energy and effort into something useful, into engineering, into preventing climate change, into making better diseases, into just understanding climate change and disease, I think uh, it would be a lot easier to solve all the challenges that we have today. Um, and so in some ways the onus is on the engineers to make it more entertaining because people aren't going to pay attention to important topics if they're boring. And that's why I'd say sports get so much attention is it's exciting, it's really fun. And so um, I think we need help from the, sci the scientists and engineers, we need help from artists and entertainers because it's not easy to make something fun and to make people want to engage and pay attention to it. There's a whole industries crafted around this and I think it's just not possible for scientists to do this. We need allies from the art community in order to get the message out. This isn't actually the first time I heard it. Um, all the way in the beginning, I think now eight years ago when I first started my, my company, um, Lightning, where, where we did videos, one of my first clients were universities. And specifically, there was this one department that did um, a science challenges. And I kept hearing this, that scientists need help from artists to, to kind of make themselves more clear uh, and explain their research better. But at the end of the day, you, you're also people. How come you're struggling with that? Yeah, it's, I think maybe this goes back to a, something we discussed a little earlier on the interdisciplinary nature of, of what's going on. I think clear communication isn't something that just happens, I think. Uh, everyone everywhere struggles to be understood and it takes practice and it takes knowledge to be able to communicate effectively. I mean, people go to college and study communications, right? It's not an obvious thing. Um, so as the scientific work gets more and more specialized and requires more and more disciplines, um, it's just another aspect that, that needs to be added. And I think it could be most effectively added through collaboration. Um, you know, there's just sort of a limit into the number of skills that any one person can have. I, I like that as a closing because it uh, definitely shows you know, the potential of collaboration. Uh, I'd like to roll out the red carpet for you. Um, where can people find you? Where can people find your company? And, and what is it that you'd like to receive if people listen to you? So um, I would love for more people just to understand the types of things that we're doing. So um, a couple years ago, I was fortunate enough to get invited to give a TED Talk on um, the mini proteins that we design and to describe a little bit about how we make them and why our technology is revolutionary. Um, and so that's, I think, a, I would point people if they want to learn more to check out the, the TED Talk. Um, and our company is called AI Proteins. And so our website is AIProteinsTX.com. And uh, sort of stay tuned there for updates on, on uh, all the cool things that we're going to be doing. Great. I like it. And uh, we'll definitely make sure that the links are in the description. But thank you so much for coming on and maybe we'll see you in the future as well. 
Thanks so much for having me. If you liked this episode, you can check out our most recent one here. And if you haven't already, make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one. But if you're interested in more tips and tricks, then make sure to join our Facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team.